0: Well, good morning everyone glad you're here and uh i was hoping that the date that they assigned me to preach would be a snow day and unfortunately there's a whole bunch of y'all here so uh and i'm and i'm not a preacher uh so uh, i apologize ahead of time you're visiting with us you just had to put up with me but um typically when i have had to preach in the past though i tend to like to sometimes it comes across a little bit as a confession because i tend to preach about things that i'm struggling with so you may hear some things in here that are kind of making me look, you know, we'll get into it, you'll find out. So for me, of you who know though, I, like I said, I'm not a preacher, I'm actually an emergency room doc. So I work in an emergency room. And you know, you, when you look at emergency rooms, we tend to have a lot in common with the restaurant industry, which is not a normal way of looking at this, but it's true. So, because basically we have a certain number of beds, they got a certain number of tables. We have a certain number of staff, you know, well, restaurants do too. And it's essential as the door's always open and there's always a new flow coming in that we have to keep those beds turning over. So we got to get patients in, we got to get them diagnosed, we got to get them treated, we got to get them disposed of, whether they're going to surgery, they're going to be admitted, going to be discharged, whichever way they're going to go. But we got to get them moving because as long as we are not disposed of permanently. (laughs) Even the electronic medical record says disposition. You know, it's, it's, a, it's what we do. we got to figure out where they're going to go. I, they're snickering that we're going to kill somebody. That's not our goal, but we have to keep those beds turning. So one particular night a couple weeks ago, there's, um, it's getting towards the end of my shift. We were 12-hour shifts. I had the day shift, and it's getting about 5 o'clock, and it had been a real pleasant day. You know, nobody died. Everything was going well, and all of a sudden, it just starts really ramping up. We've got every room full, we've got people in the waiting room, there's a couple of new ambulances coming in, and we get a page out overhead that there's a jumper on the bridge. And it's like, oh, for Pete's sakes, you know? I mean, not that we're not sensitive to those who are having serious psychiatric issues, but usually if you're posing up on the bridge, we tend to doubt your sincerity a little bit, just because this is the long-standing thing in Red Wing. We've got this huge bridge, it's uh, going across the Mississippi, it's about 100 feet off the water, And to my knowledge, never in the history of Red Wing has anyone actually jumped off that bridge. You know, it just doesn't happen, you know, because it's cold. The water's deep. You're not going to die hitting the water, but it's, it's one of these ongoing threats. And I know that likelihood this guy's not going to actually do anything. And we're full. So I know I'm going to get him. And uh, it's like, okay, so we're trying to rearrange. I've got one psych room. It's a safe room. We can put people. And we got that one full. But the guy who's been in there, he's been real cooperative. He's not done anything stupid. So we're thinking we can move him to another location, put him one on one with somebody. Then we can have a room open in case this guy comes in. So time's going by. We're hearing the radio chatter. We're trying to get things moving. We got more patients coming in. And now, all of a sudden, we get a page out that there's a fire. Well, this guy's blocked all the traffic in Red Wing now for about 45 minutes. So everything's at a standstill in town. The fire engine's there, so they've got to try to get back to go downtown to fight this fire. And it's just, it's just a big mess. So probably about 30 minutes later, we we'll get the call that he's coming in. And, uh, you know, he hasn't jumped. He hasn't done anything bad. But um, as soon as they bring him in the door, I immediately recognize him. And, and this is a guy who's, I think he was about 23 years old. I won't mention any names, but this has got to be the 15th to 20th time that we've dealt with him the situation. And the problem is, it's not that he's just suicidal, he's also high on meth. Now, most of you have probably never really seen someone high on meth, I hope. Uh, when you see someone a little bit high on meth, they're a little bit twitchy. But when you see someone really high on meth, and I don't mean this in a, in a bad kind of way, but I want you to think about your worst encounter with a dog. Have you ever seen a dog that is just rabid? I mean, just angry, lashing out at everything around it, just out of control. You know, picture that in your mind, now picture that in a human being. And so not only is he saying that he's suicidal to the police on the way in, but as he comes in, he's having to be restrained by three police officers. There's another one behind him that's got a hand on a taser. He's lashing out, he's calling us every name in the book. I'm learning new vocabulary every week. You know, I mean, all these sort of things. It's just like, not again. You know, this guy just won't learn. You know, he's done this before. We've walked him through this. You know, and it's it's a self-inflicted injury. You know, when you do this, it's gonna mess you up, and you keep doing it. So, okay, those are particularly Christian thoughts. You know, we're supposed to be forgiving, we're supposed to be patient. But, you know, I'm thinking about my righteous indignation. No, he's a threat to my safety. He's a threat to my staff's safety. He's taking up the beds. He's going to take up resources. So all these other people aren't going to get the attention they deserve because of this one guy. Okay, well, to make a long story short, I mean, we are finally able to talk him down a little bit. We gave him a safe room. He even gets a little more cooperative. And at the end of my shift, I just signed him over to Dr. Bedick. So uh, I get to go home. So uh, it was nice. Pass the buck. You know, let somebody else deal with it. So... But, you know, as I'm going home, I'm thinking about myself. And I'm thinking about forgiveness. And I'm thinking about the fruits of the Spirit, you know. You know, it's like, okay, the thoughts that I was having in my mind from this guy who's lashing out at me, was I really displaying a Christian attitude? And I, and I did to him. But I remember at one point when I first walked out of the room with him and uh, the police officer who was in charge, the sergeant who was there, and he's an old linebacker, and he's been, I've known him for 20-something years, and he's just a no-nonsense guy. And I remember under my breath saying to him, you know, why don't you just tell him to jump? And uh, <laughs> it's like, now that's, that's not a particularly Christian attitude, is it? And, you know, so I'm, I'm feeling a little bad about that, but of course, he and being the no-nonsense guy is like, I would have, I would have kicked him, except we have to wear these recording devices. So I mean, so we're, we're on the same page. You know, he's dealt with me more than I have. So we're on the same page, but at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm going home and I'm thinking, you know, I need to clean up my attitude. And then, you know, the other thing I usually do on the way home is I tend to just, as I'm driving, it takes about 20 minutes to get home, I tend to pray about certain patients I saw that day. You know, ones that need a little more help than I just had to offer, or certain things that stick out in my mind. And I'm, so I'm driving home, he's still on my mind, I'm still mad. It's like, all right, you know, you know dear Lord, you know, it, First of all, thank you so much that my life's not as messed up as his. And then it just hit me. Does that sound familiar at all? Just a little bit? You know, so if you look over in Luke, you know, because this just is like, what am I doing? So in Luke chapter 18, verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax gatherer. Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank Thee that I'm not like other people. You know, I'm not unjust, I'm not a swindler, I'm not adulterer, I'm not a meth head. And that's what I'm praying. You know, and it's like, what am I doing here? I'm as bad as the Pharisee. So, sometimes, so I know it's a bit of a confession, but sometimes we as Christians, even if we think it's a righteous type of thing, and even if we justify it in our mind, we tend to forget who we are we become complacent we become a little bit proud we tend to forget that you know my sin may be different than his but i still got sin so first john 1 8 says if we say we have no sin we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us and i'm as guilty as every one of the rest of you sometimes i lose sight of what i should be and sometimes and i didn't like i said i didn't do anything to this guy and i didn't say anything to this guy But I think back to Matthew 5 when Jesus said, you know, Old Testament says, don't kill. But I'm saying you shouldn't even get angry enough for your brother to call him a name. And I didn't call him names, but I was sure thinking a few, because he was calling me plenty. So it's just we gotta we not only have to worry about our actions, we have to worry about our thoughts. You know, we have to stay above the fray. We've been called out to be different. We've not to blend in with the world. To be just as impatient or just as harsh as those around us are to everybody else, that's not what we're supposed to be. So, sometimes we forget. Sometimes we just lose sight. But we need to keep that in the forefront of our minds. Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit, having peace, love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, all those things, we already know about those. Against such things there's no law, but even if we have those things that doesn't mean the world's always going to like us. I'm trying to display these things to this guy, and I've tried it numerous times before, and he's still going to say bad things to me. He's still going to hate what I'm representing at the moment. He's still going to strike out and lash out at me. Now, in his situation, that's because of drugs, but sometimes in your life, there are going to be people who are still going to not like you or hate you because of what you are. And that's uncomfortable. Uh, look over in John chapter 15 if you would. John 15, Jesus is telling this to his, to his apostles as he's getting ready to leave. And he says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And remember, the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You see, if we live our lives aligned with the will of God, we should expect that the world's not always going to like that. And that's uncomfortable to us. You know, we think if we treat everybody nicely and we really do our part to live that Christian life that people are going to have to like us. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus also said that we're to be the salt of the earth. Now when you think about it, any of you guys that cook at all, and I know most people here have cooked something in their life, if you leave the salt out of a recipe, the recipe stinks. You know, it's just not good. You've got to have salt. But you also know if you've ever been cooking at all, you've got a little cut on your hand, you've got a little crack in your finger or something, and you get that salt in there, what does that feel like? It lights you up. It hurts. It hurts bad. And you can't wait to go wash that off and get that down the sink and just get that out of your life. And so do you ever think about that sometimes living the Christian life and displaying those fruits of the Spirit that it can almost feel like the salt in the wounded lives of those around you? Think about that a little bit. That sometimes displaying those fruits of the Spirit can be like salt in the wound of those wounded lives around you. That's why they may not like you for what you represent. That's why they may strike out against you for what you represent. Because you're salty. So uh, that's what you're supposed to be. So the question then is, how do we live in a world full of hate and yet be filled with hope? So first of all, we could concede. We could just say, you know, we all want to be liked. We want to be appreciated. We want people to think kindly of us. So we could say, you know, basically, in order to blend in with the world, we're just going to give it up. We're just going to be just like them. We're going to act like them. We're going to speak like them. We're going to be on social media just like them. We're going to do everything the world does because we don't want to be different I don't think that's what Jesus says for us to do, the other thing we could do is just be like a, a chameleon, you know little lizards change color, you know so basically when I'm with Christians I'm going to act like Christians but when I'm with the world I'm going to dress and act and speak and do everything just like the world does you know because I don't want them feeling uncomfortable I don't want them to, to feel like that we're too different, I, I want to blend in because I want them to like me but Jesus doesn't call us to concede and Jesus certainly doesn't call us to be a lizard, you know, and be a chameleon and keep changing our colors. He's calling us to live counter to everything that the world values. And that's hard. And that's hard. So turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. We want to do a lot of our time in 1 Peter today. Because 1 Peter is a great chapter, and in the very first chapter of it, he makes, Peter makes very clear that, first of all, that we are the people of God. That not just individually... But collectively, as a group, we are God's people. And we're a community that's been called out, part of the elect, part of the set-apart people of God. And that's who we are. In verse 1 and 2, if you look there real quickly, we just skim through this part so we won't get to the rest of it. But we're chosen by the sanctifying work of the Spirit that you may obey Jesus Christ. And in verse 3, His mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We're called out of the world to be something different. And then in verse 3 through 12, he reminds us of what it is that we have. And we've been given and blessed with some great eternal blessings, living hope and living Savior, through which we have an eternal promise of an eternal home. So he's called us out. He's told us that we're different. He reminds us that we have these great blessings. So we need to remember then that who we are, And what we have affects how I live. So who we are and what we have affects my behavior. It affects how I interact with other people. It affects every aspect of my life. So, different way of looking at it. What you believe affects how you behave. It affects how you think. It affects how you speak. That's who we are and what we believe. So, we understand this, Christians... That who we are and what we have from God may sometimes make us feel like we're strangers, like we don't belong in this world. We don't fit in. We're purposefully told that we're different than the rest of the world. We have a different value system. So back to first Peter chapter one. This time I look in verse 13. Because we we'll want to talk about that living as strangers demands holy obedience. So verses 13 through 16, Therefore gird your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought at you of the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy because I am holy. So the word, therefore, that begins that verse 13 is Peter's way of saying, look, that you know, who you are and what you have impacts your behavior. It changes the way you interact with others. It changes the way you interact in your own life. And he's saying that because your hope is fixed on a future destination, that it changes who you are and it changes the way you behave. So Peter says that we're called out to live holy, and the reason of that is because we're trying to be like God. And God is holy. And holy is not a, a usual term that we use here a whole lot. I know Bruce spent some time last week talking about that. And just trying to understand the majesty and the holiness of God is just it's beyond our understanding. But, but what does holy actually mean? You know, and holy means set apart. It means set apart for God's purpose. And so you, in your life, are set apart to live a different standard. God's a God who's holy, and He expects your life, and He expects my life to be holy. So, and not that we're any better than anybody else, not that my life in it itself is any better value or any less value than anyone else's, but our purpose is different. We have a holy purpose set apart. So, there's a quote that I read, and I don't even remember who wrote this, but basically it seemed to sum this idea up pretty well. So I'll read to you real quick. It said, the church... Understands itself to be the sacred people of God's possession, a people with a pattern for life which differs from that of the world. The primary issue is not the private holiness of the individual; it's not necessarily me, but rather the point is is that an entire people give witness to God's plan for the world. This is a group sport. This is a team effort. We're all trying to strive to be holy, to live up to what He'd have us be, so that we can be an influence on those around us. So our hope impacts our holiness. 1 John 3.3. I want to talk about it real quick, but I'll read it to you quick. It just says that, "...and everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure." God expects us to purify our lives, to purify our thoughts... To not think back those bad thoughts just because someone else is thinking bad thoughts towards us. So what I want you to see this morning as we talk about our place in this world is that we can talk about hope in a hate-filled world, but you can't have hope without holiness. Sometimes we tend to do that. We think, you know, if I just come to church for an hour a week and I kind of dip into that holiness thing, your know, life's good, then I go right back to what I was doing before, right back into the world and just live my life any way I want to. You can't find hope that way, you know, it doesn't work. You've got to be in this all the time. It is a continuous effort of trying to be clean because we've been set apart. We don't live by the values of this world and there are times in our lives when we're going to have to be content to live as strangers. We're going to have to be content to live differently from those around us because living as strangers demands holy obedience. And number two, living in strangers demands reverent fear. I know we talk a lot about not, you know, having no fear. That's a common thing. No fear at all. And we certainly don't need to fear that God's not going to keep His promises. But we need to fear that God is going to keep some of His promises. So look at 1 Peter 1, verse 17. And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, Inherited by your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So, when you think about this, just remember, there's a phrase I'm pretty sure you can all complete easily. What stays in Vegas, or what happens in Vegas? I'm sorry, I can play it for you. I'm all messed up. So, what happens in Vegas? And you've heard it for other things. What happens at the lake? Stays in the lake. What happens in New Orleans? Stays in New Orleans. You know, we all have these super little places that it's like, you know, what happens over here? that just stays there. You know, what happens in this chat room? That stays there. That's not the way it works. You know, that's, that's a bold-faced lie. God knows everything. He sees everything. So the idea that our society wants to tell us is, you know, hey, there's this place where you can go and do anything you want and there's going to be no consequences. That's just not even remotely true. We know better than that. But our, our society wants to tell you that. But God Almighty says that's not the case. And He says you need to live with reverent fear knowing that He sees what you do. So how does that impact your life? So what I'm telling you is that the Creator of the universe is saying you need to have a little reverent fear about your behavior basically because I know. And, And I don't like that. I don't like it a bit, but... But he says it's the case, so we need to take that seriously, that our lives are being held under scrutiny by God. And this causes me to live with reverent fear. It causes me to examine my heart. It causes me to think about, was my, was my heart right when I'm dealing with this guy that I didn't want to deal with the other day? You know, Was my heart pure? Was I really having pure motives in my interaction with him? Because I don't really think they were. But I know that God is, is watching what I'm up to. So God's not a God of favoritism. He's a God who judges indiscriminately. And having established all that, what Peter does is then he talks about our hope in the future. And he also reaches back into our past to remind us of what that's based upon. That it's based upon the sacrifice that God made. And he gave Jesus in his blood to make us pure. So do you remember what life was like before you became a Christian? Well, some of you became a Christian pretty young. You may not have been in too much trouble. But some of you can remember there were some pretty rough times there. And so Peter basically is painting us a picture about that. And you've all seen different ads on TV. You've seen the ones for weight loss. You know, where we got the picture, you know, if here was you when you were just enjoying all the goodies you could eat, and here's the new skinny you with the new weight loss thing. You've seen the little uh, wrinkle creams. You know, here's a picture of you looking like you're 90 years old, and you smear this cream all over you, and now you look 20. You know, you've seen those. Well, Peter's kind of doing the same sort of thing. He's saying, you know, if you look at your life, before you became a Christian, this is what you look like. And now, after you became a Christian, this is what you look like. You know, and basically, it should be different. You should be a different person. Your friends who knew you before you became a Christian should say, you know, man, there's something a little bit different about you. You, know, you don't go hang out with us. You don't do this. You don't do that. There's all these different behaviors that we used to do together, and you're not doing them anymore. You know, sometimes I don't even know if I recognize you because you have changed. That's what we're supposed to do. So look over in 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll jump ahead a little bit in verse 3. Because Peter says, you have spent enough time in the past when he says, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality. Lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, vulnerable idolatries, and all this, they're still surprised that you don't run with them into excess dissipation, and they malign you. So You used to do this stuff, and now as a Christian, you don't participate. They can't believe you're not participating, and they're going to make fun of you now because you're not part of that anymore. You're different. You've become a new creature. That's the way it's supposed to work. It just doesn't feel good. We don't like to not be liked. So what Peter's saying is that what's true of a weight loss plan, what's true of a wrinkle cream is the same as your life as a Christian. You're not the same person, and that's what it's supposed to be like. So this is a paragraph from Chuck Swindoll, and he talks about this lifestyle of what we used to have. and He calls it the before lifestyle. And he said, the before lifestyle leads only to another hangover or another bout of guilt, and if there's even enough conscience left for guilt... He says, it's one happy hour after another, and he does admit that that's kind of a strange term, a happy hour, which gets you in trouble. Um, one high after another, one snort after another, one drug after another, one affair after another, one abortion after another, one partner after another. And it's a life lived for the highs, which are really nothing more than temporary breaks in the lows, because you're always low looking for that little piece of happiness. It's empty, it's hollow, it's miserable. And it's just what Peter said, it's futile. There is no happiness to be found in that. So the after picture, Peter says that Jesus Christ, the unblemished lamb, came and did what he did to redeem us, to buy us back. An example I want to use that is there was a lady named Frances Havergal. As a teenager, she'd gone into a church somewhere and she'd seen a picture of Jesus on the wall and below it it said, I gave my life for thee, what hast thou done for, for me? I know we know that as a song. Well, Frances is the one who wrote the, the words of that. So as a teenager, she sketched out a, a poem, and she basically wrote out the whole song, but she didn't like it. And so she watered up a piece of paper and threw it in the fireplace, uh, Watered paper, apparently bounced off the log, kind of rolled aside, got a little bit charred, but it didn't burn up. So next morning, her dad gets up, and he comes down and stokes the fire, and he notices this piece of paper in there, and he looks at that and unrolls it, and he's like, this is, this is really good. So he ends up having it published. Francis didn't know about that at the time, but he thought it was a good poem. And it became the song that we all know. But um, basically, it's very similar to what Jesus has done for us. Reached into the fire, pulled out what somebody else may have thought was trash, what somebody else may have thought was worthless. And yet, he restored it. He redeemed it, and he made it right. And that's our Christian life. So third thing, living as strangers demands unity. And John, I was reading John, first uh, and second John lately, and there's just tons and tons about this. But, but first Peter chapter one verse twenty-two, and we'll just read that real quick. Since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. You know, Fervently—that's not a word we use a lot either. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is. Through the living and abiding Word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the Word which was preached to you. Therefore putting aside all malice, all guile, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord." So here's the progression of Peter's writing. He's saying that, one, we're filled with hope. And it leads to holiness. And hope and holiness, when you combine those two, lead to harmony. So when you think about it, we should have harmony everywhere in the church. We should have harmony right here. Because we have the same Father. We share the same struggle. We have the same guidebook. You know, what is there that could possibly be tearing us apart from one another anywhere in the church? We should be united. Why should there be deceit? Why should there be any malice? Why any envy? Hypocrisy? You know, slander? All those things. All those things that are our own temptations that help pull us apart. But we as a church should always stand united, committed to holiness, because we're God's people. We're separate. We're different. And Ephesians 4.31 repeats the same thing. He says, Let all bitterness all wrath, all anger, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So what I'm saying is that the character of God, the holy character of God, must affect how we live. And it must particularly affect how we live with each other. Why? Because we're strangers. If we're strangers to the world, then we have to keep holding on to each other and loving each other as family because that's how we get through this life together. So as we close, I have three questions I want you to think about. And I think these are three questions that you can basically use in your life every day, and I try to use them in my life. Number one, when I'm thinking about things that I'm going to be saying or things I'm going to be doing is, first, is it conform to the character of God? Can somebody look at what I'm doing or saying and say, Yep, that seems like that would be something that a godly person would do. Number two, this whatever I'm about to do or say reflect my salvation? Could people look at that and say, this guy's been saved? You know? Or, yeah, that's in fitting with a character that I would expect of a Christian. And number three, will what I, I'm about to do or say stand up to the scrutiny of God? Because He sees all and He knows all. And so it's not even what I'm about to do or say, it's what am I letting myself think about? Those are the challenges that we have to do. But if you can answer yes to all three of those questions, then I think you can rest pretty comfortable that absolutely you are living within the harmony of the will of God, right in the center of where He wants you to be. We have to replace hatred and sin with hope and holiness. So would you pray with me real quick? So, our Dear God, we're answering yes to these questions this morning. And answering yes, we recognize that to those outside of Christ that we may, we may come off a little bit odd. And Father, we don't seek to be odd just for the sake of being odd, but Father, we recognize that at times we may be seen as being odd for the sake of our hope and our holiness and our harmony. And Father, in a world filled with hate and sin, I pray that you would give us a contentment this morning to live as strangers with a hope firmly fixed, not in this world, but in another world. And with that hope affecting how we live as holy people right now. And Father, I pray that in this particular outpost of your kingdom in this world that we would always live in harmony because of the common love we share and the common hope that we share as those called out of darkness into the kingdom of light. Father, that's my prayer for all of us today. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we're going to be dismissed, but uh, we have another little special thing today. And that Jenny Augusting, who's uh, Jody's best friend, Jody Ornsby's best friend, has been doing some study in the last few weeks, and she'd like to be baptized today. So if uh, y'all will be <laughs> heading down that way, we'll, we'll go there.